Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Please find your seats. Welcome back to our Fundamentals of the Faith Sunday School series. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from missionaries the last two weeks. Please check out the recordings, the Sunday School recordings, if you missed those. But today we're back in FOF and we're wrapping up our study on the topic of the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray and we'll get into it. God in heaven, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your Holy Spirit ministering, us, ministering to us today in a way that is more wonderful than the Holy Spirit has ever ministered before. Well, thank you for this grand reality. Thank you that you have made your dwelling not just with us, but in us. Pray that you'd show us more about that this morning. Help me to be able to explain it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are learning about the Holy Spirit again today from Lesson 7 in our Fundamentals of the Faith curriculum. So if you have your books, your workbooks, please turn back to Lesson 7. We are going to be under Roman numeral 5, Roman numeral V. Have you heard me tell you previously, studying the Holy Spirit is important because we want to avoid falling into two opposite errors today. Two opposite but common errors today. Underemphasizing... And even forgetting about the Holy Spirit, just talk about the other members of the Trinity, just talk about the Bible, and overemphasizing and even becoming obsessed with the Holy Spirit. You don't talk about the other members of the Trinity, and you're not worried about the Bible at all. We don't want to fall into either one of those errors. The Holy Spirit, as we've come to learn, is the one true God, deserving equal honor, worship, and obedience alongside the Father and the Son. Yet the Holy Spirit is not concerned about bringing glory to himself. His priority is glorifying the Son and conforming us into the image of the Son, which is what we'll talk about more today. But last time we were together in our FOF class, we spent most of our lesson talking about what the Holy Spirit does in salvation. And he does a lot. We talked about how the Holy Spirit fundamentally convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Holy Spirit gives new spiritual birth, even cleansing regeneration to sinners. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ and into Christ's body, which is the church. And the Holy Spirit seals us, functioning as a down payment, a guarantee of our full salvation inheritance to come. Now these are all one-time acts of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit does not need to regenerate, baptize, or seal us multiple times. But the Spirit's ministry extends beyond our initial salvation experience, for sure. The Spirit continues to play certain key roles in our sanctification, in our daily walk as Christians, in our becoming more holy, in our becoming more like Christ. And what's notable about these ongoing works of the Spirit is that we participate with the Spirit in what He does. Yes, salvation and sanctification is a work that is all of God, and yet, in the ongoing work, our wills are involved. We can resist the Spirit's work, or we can open ourselves up to it and experience God's power and blessing. So let's talk today about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Like I said, that's Roman numeral 5 and Lesson 7. We're going to talk through the points here going to the end of the chapter. Now remember, this is not exhaustive. We're just hitting some of the main things when it comes to the Holy Spirit's ministry in the believer's life. 
But the first ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life that we want to talk about, it's even happening in your life right now if you belong to Jesus Christ, is the ministry to which we've already alluded, and that is the ministry of indwelling. Indwelling. As part of his functioning as a seal and guarantee of our salvation, the Holy Spirit continually dwells in us. Right now, the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside you if you know Jesus Christ. And this is not just true of you individually, it's also true of us corporately. As a church, we are the temple, the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. Even in our bodies, but also in our church. Look at question A under Roman numeral 5 in your books. Question A asks us, asks us, what is the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the believer? And it points us to Romans 8 9. So I'll read Romans 8 9 to you. Romans 8 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So what's the answer to question A? What is the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the believer? Yeah. The Spirit lives in believers. The Spirit dwells inside believers. And notice from Romans 8 9, well, you don't have it in front of you, but I'll read it to you again. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Notice those two terms, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ. Both of them are used to describe the Spirit. That's significant. Because that means that in some mysterious way, both God the Father and God the Son dwell in us through the Spirit. Jesus was not waxing poetical when he said in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is literally with us by his Spirit. That's an amazing reality. Compare John 14, verse 23. John 14, 23, Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to make our abode with him. What's he talking about? This is a reference to the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, in which the whole Trinity, in a mysterious way, come to reside in our hearts. It's by the Holy Spirit. But look at question B. Is it possible to be a Christian and not be indwelled by the Holy Spirit? It is not. Romans 8 9 is pretty explicit about that, right? Those without the Spirit of Christ don't belong to Christ. There are no true Christians out there who lack the Spirit. The whole Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. By the way, note that this is a new covenant reality. This is a new covenant reality. The Spirit did not previously indwell God's people permanently. It was only after Christ's salvation work and his ascension to heaven that God sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his people, and most spectacularly on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. This is a new covenant reality. This is not the way it always was. This is not to say, however, that the Spirit was inactive before Pentecost. 
that the Spirit wasn't doing anything in Old Testament times. Actually, in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, you will read various descriptions of the Spirit filling a person or coming upon a person, empowering him to some kind of prophetic, creative, ruling, or delivering action. This is a temporary indwelling of the Holy Spirit for empowerment. Apart from the Spirit coming upon Christ, this was not permanent. This was very notable in the Gospels. When you see the Spirit come upon Jesus, what does John the Baptist say? I saw the Spirit come upon him and remain on him. He was permanently empowered by the Holy Spirit. But apart from Christ, it's just temporary. And it's notable that some people that the Bible says were temporarily filled with the Holy Spirit, they proved later to be faithless evildoers. I'm thinking of Balaam. By the Holy Spirit, he prophesies about Israel. And later on, he's slain because he was against the Lord. Or Saul. Saul is empowered by the Holy Spirit to deliver Israel. But the Spirit later leaves Saul. And Saul, when he dies, it is in a state where he doesn't look like he's repented. He doesn't look like he's following the Lord anymore. And yet he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit for a time. I would say this temporary nature of the Old Testament spirit anointing, it explains the prayer that we read from David in Psalm 5111. You don't have to turn there. But that prayer in Psalm 5111 from David is that God would not take away his Holy Spirit from David. And you consider the context of that psalm, David would have reason to pray that prayer because David has just committed a terrible set of sins in connection with Bathsheba. Committed adultery, committed murder, living hypocritically before Israel for more than nine months. David prays that God will not take away his Holy Spirit. Now in this psalm, David is not describing the same situation that exists for believers today. Believers in Christ cannot lose salvation and they cannot lose God's spirit. Yet David, in his own time, he realized that his actions could have resulted in the Lord taking away that empowering spirit, the spirit was, that it was empowering David to specially rule and deliver Israel. God could have taken that away from David, just as he took it away from Saul. And so he implores the Lord, please don't take your spirit away from me. So the Spirit was certainly active in Old Testament times, but in a different way. His indwelling, his filling, his coming upon a person was a temporary thing, empowering for specific action. Yet that was not the only way that the Spirit was active in the Old Testament era, under the Old Covenant. The Spirit was also doing a version of the same things that he does in salvation today. Let's not misunderstand Salvation was not fundamentally different for Old Testament saints as for New Testament saints. Salvation for them, like us, was by grace alone, through faith alone. Through God alone and God's perfect provision, which ultimately was Christ alone. Uh, Galatians 3 emphasizes this truth. Furthermore, the Spirit had to cleanse and regenerate hearts in Old Testament times, just as the Spirit does today. Human nature hasn't changed. How could salvation happen any other way apart from God's, being, or God's begetting people from above? 
People were just as helpless and dead in sin before Christ as when Christ arrived and after he arrived. So when Jesus says in John 3 that one must be begotten from above in order to enter the kingdom of God, he's not articulating a new rule, but an old rule, an old reality, one that Jesus says Nicodemus should have been aware of from studying the Old Testament. Or perhaps that may make you wonder, hmm, well, if the Spirit saves the same way today as he did back then, then what's so new about the new covenant? What's so new about the new covenant that God promises to Israel in Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel? Aren't things kind of just the same? I would give a quick answer. Part of the newness of the new covenant is that God promised to regenerate the whole nation of Israel. Not just individuals. And that promise we've not yet seen fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. Paul confirms that in Romans. But the other part of the answer is, though what Old Testament believers had in God's spirit was sufficient for salvation and for sanctification, what comes by God's spirit in Christ in the new covenant is much better. It's much better. It was sufficient in Old Testament times, but it's much better now. For example, Old Testament saints believed in a coming provision for salvation, but they did not yet fully know what that was. They'd never heard the name Jesus Christ. Many of them had very little concept of a saving Messiah. They knew God had to provide something for sin. He had to provide some kind of salvation and Savior, but they didn't know what it was. But we, we have seen, and we know specifically who our glorious Savior is and what he has done. That is so much better. We can rejoice even more. We can find encouragement and empowerment even more because we know the Savior. Or as another example, though the Spirit was with Old Testament saints, accomplishing the ministries of salvation and sanctification, he was not permanently in them. And Jesus promised something better in his new covenant, and which is what we all experienced. John 14, 16 to 17, John 14, 16 to 17, records Jesus saying this to his disciples. I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, if you're listening carefully to that, those statements from Jesus, you notice two differences that he presents about the Holy Spirit compared to Old Testament experience. He says the Spirit will abide with Christ's disciples forever. This is going to be permanent. It's not going to be varying. And he also says the Spirit will be in his disciples. He's presently with you. He will be in you. You may notice something else from the verse. In describing the Holy Spirit, Christ calls the Spirit another helper. Another helper. That is another advocate. Another counselor that is just like Jesus himself. After all, consider the context of John 14. Jesus is telling his disciples that he is about to leave them and return to the Father. But he assures them that they will receive a helper soon, just like him. I mean, 
if we think about it, what could be more wonderful than to have Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, with you all the time? Old Testament saints obviously didn't get to experience that. The disciples did, and then they were facing the prospect of losing that. We're at this high level, and now we're going to get a downgrade because you're no longer with us. Jesus essentially assures them, there's not going to be any downgrade. There's not going to be any downgrade for you or any of the disciples that come after me. Because when I leave, the Father and I will send the Spirit to you. He will be with you permanently. He will be a helper just like me. Now this is new. This is wonderful. This is better than what anyone experienced in the Old Testament. You see what I mean about how even though the Spirit's ministry in some ways is the same as the Old Testament, and in other ways it's not. It's so much better. Now, we cannot say all the ways that the Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament was different to the New. But the main takeaway of that truth is twofold. Number one, Old Testament saints had whatever they needed to be saved and to follow God's or follow God in holiness. There's no excuse on not having God's indwelling Holy Spirit. You shouldn't look at the Old Testament saints and be like, oh, you know, they didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. So what could they do? They just had to sin. Not at all. Not at all. They had whatever they needed for salvation and sanctification. That's number one. But number two, what we have is even better. Thus, we have even more reason to turn to God in repentance and faith and to follow after him in holiness. Hebrews 2, 3 how will we escape if we, if we neglect so great a salvation? It was great for them. It's even greater for us. So, one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit, ongoing ministries in the believer's life today, is indwelling. But it results in two further key ministries towards believers. Ministries, as I alluded to earlier, ministries in which we have both the opportunity and responsibility to cooperate with God's Holy Spirit. I, you believe in Jesus, he's going to indwell you no matter what. That's, that's not really going to depend on you. But there are some ministries that flow out of indwelling with which you need to cooperate. What are those ministries? Well, they are illumination and utilization. What are those? Well, I'll tell you. Let's keep following the questions in our book, and, and that'll, that'll help explain. For illumination... Look at question C, question C in your books, under Roman numeral 5. And for this question, we're, cold, we're told to look at 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13. So why don't you take your Bibles and turn there. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13, and we'll actually add verse 14 in there too. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14. This has to do with the Spirit's ministry of illumination. Let's see what these verses say. Paul speaking, he says, Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You may notice in verse 12, 
that it says that God gave us his spirit for a purpose. What is that purpose? No, what things in particular, Glenda? Right, so I believe that's essentially true. He's going to show us the things about Christ, even the things that um, Christ wanted his disciples to know, but he didn't, he, they weren't ready to receive yet. Specifically here in verse 12, it says that, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Whatever things are freely given to us by God, God gave us his spirit so that we may know it. And so those would be the things about Christ. Uh, in the preceding context, he talks about the wisdom of God, which is summed up in Christ. Certainly, it's the gospel. In a way, it is the mind of God. Uh, he says that a little bit later. We have the mind of Christ. But where do we find this today? Where do we find God's wisdom, God's mind, God's gospel mystery revealed? In his word, in the scriptures. So to answer question C... What is another ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer? He teaches us. He helps us know and understand what? God's word, the scriptures. God's truth about Christ from the scriptures. These are the things that God has freely given to us. The Holy Spirit causes believers both to understand and welcome God's truth from scripture. It's like the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, shines his light in our minds so that we may know the things of God and accept and love the very wisdom of God. This, of course, happens in a fundamental way upon conversion, but the Holy Spirit continues to do this for us as we walk as Christians. We'll continue to learn and know what the Spirit teaches us from the word of Christ. By the way, was the Holy Spirit involved in the ministry of illumination in Old Testament times? Yes, definitely. How do we know that? Okay, uh, you make a good point, Mark. In terms of people speaking prophetically, it was definitely the Spirit doing that. Illumination is involved, though that's going to overlap a little bit with inspiration. But even aside from people being specially empowered to write scripture or to speak prophecy, we know that the Spirit was causing people in the Old Testament to understand God's word. How do we know that? I mean, first, it's got to be logically required, but we can even point to scripture that tells us this. Like, uh, Judy? Yeah, Psalm 119. This psalm that is dedicated to celebrating God's word and, in, and importuning him on the basis of God's word, what is the kind of prayer that you see it again and again? God, teach me. God, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your law. That's beseeching the Lord by his spirit to illuminate, to go about his ministry of illumination. Yeah, Mark. Right, so, yeah, Mark mentioned from the Legacy Standard Bible translation of Psalm 119, 
even the verbs that say make me or teach me, there's, a, there's an idea of cause, cause me to understand, cause me to see or to do certain things. And the Legacy Standard Bible captures that. And that's certainly, that's because the Spirit must do it. The Spirit must open your eyes. The Spirit mu- must cause you to learn. So again, the Spirit was doing this in Old Testament times, but the Spirit is also doing it now in an even better way. We have the Spirit not merely with us, but inside us to teach us the things of God that we otherwise could not know, could not understand, could not welcome. What a wonderful reality. But here's where someone might ask, wait a second, I know some unbelievers who know and understand the Bible very well. Some of them are Bible scholars. So how can the Bible say that those without the Spirit the natural man, unbelievers, how can the Bible say that they cannot understand the things of God? Experience seems to say otherwise. That's a good question. Can anybody think of a satisfactory reply? Let me go to Dwayne. Yes. That's right. So Dwayne has, has put his finger on the key issue. The understanding involves acceptance. It involves welcoming. Notice those terms actually appear in the text that we read, and particularly in verse 14. What is the natural man's reaction to God's truth? He does not accept them, for they seem like foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually appraised or judged or appreciated. Many unbelievers do not know the Bible and do not want to know the Bible. Because they, as Jesus says in John 3, they love darkness rather than light, and they do not want to come to the light, lest their evil deeds will be exposed. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to know his word. But for some unbelievers who find reason to learn God's word, but who ultimately reject what's written in it, well, as Dwayne said, we can conclude that they've never truly understood it. They've never truly understood it. They may understand the words of it, They may understand the structure of it. They may understand the overall message of it. They may be able to wax eloquently about the intricacies of the Hebrew and the Greek. But they cannot welcome it. They cannot judge it rightly. To them, it still seems like foolishness. They'll say, yeah, this is what the text says, but I don't believe it. Why is that? Because they have no spirit. They have no spirit to illuminate it for them so that they will believe so that they will truly understand and believe. You know, I read in the news recently that a church had an AI preach a sermon to them. And in one way, we can understand this being possible. Even an AI can understand the biblical text well enough to tell you what it says. But can an AI welcome and judge it rightly? Of course not. An AI cannot appreciate the significance of the message of the Bible, for the AI has no life. It's not alive. In the same way, the natural man cannot truly appreciate God's truth, because he has no life. He has no spirit to regenerate him or to illuminate him. You cannot welcome the scriptures. You need the Holy Spirit to understand and believe the wisdom of God, and that's what God has done for us in Christ. He's given us his Holy Spirit so that we may know the things freely given to us. 
But perhaps there's another question. If God has given us his Holy Spirit to understand and appreciate his truth, how come many believers report that they struggle to do so? They struggle to understand God's word, and they struggle to agree on it. There are all sorts of professing believers today, and they don't agree on what the Bible says. How can that be if the Spirit is illuminating us to understand God's truth? Now, that is a good question, and we do not have very much time to answer it. So allow me just to share a section with you from Biblical Doctrine. So Biblical Doctrine is a systematic theology created by faculty of the Master's Seminary, edited by MacArthur and Mayhew. I believe we have some copies. Very valuable resource. There's a section in that book on the Spirit's work of illumination, and specifically what illumination does not mean or promise. Sorry, the text is small. I will read this to you. What illumination does not mean or promise, at least six things. And we get this from Scripture. Number one, illumination does not function outside God's word. Don't expect the Spirit to show you God's truth without the ordained means of God's word. That's the way God's chosen to do it. If you're just say, okay, Spirit, illumine me. I'm going to go off and meditate by myself, but I'm not going to touch the word of God. It's not going to happen. The Spirit illuminates using God's word. Number two, illumination does not guarantee that every Christian will agree doctrinally. Why? Because the human element can cause false doctrine. The Spirit doesn't fail, but we often do. We fail due to our own sin, our own ignorance, our own weakness. And that explains why we sometimes cannot agree. Number three, illumination does not mean that everything about God is knowable. Whatever he's given to us, Yes, that is knowable by the Spirit, but there are plenty of things he hasn't told us. And so the Spirit is not going to illuminate those things to us. He's intent on revealing what's in the word of Christ, the scriptures. Number four, illumination does not render the need for human teachers unnecessary. Actually, God gave teachers. This is clear from Ephesians 4. God gave teachers in the local and the universal church to be a means that the Spirit would use to open Christ's word to your understanding. We can get the wrong idea. We say, God's given me his spirit. He's given me the Bible. Good. I don't need anybody else. No, God says you do need other people, especially to make sure you're not going off track. You need to be in a community of faithful interpreters so that you can understand the word of God. Number five, illumination is not a substitute for dedicated personal Bible study. 2 Timothy 2.15 emphasizes this very well. God has ordained that spirit insight. It will come to you by your own reading, listening, and study. And that's not always easy. But that's how the spirit works. The spirit works even through your own study. And then number six, illumination is not a one-time experience. As we said, though illumination happens fundamentally for us at salvation, that's why the Bible can talk about us becoming enlightened. When you were enlightened, that is when you believed. Illumination does happen fundamentally at salvation, but the Spirit continues to illuminate Christ's word for us, and we need that. We will not be able to understand and welcome the word of Christ, those things freely given to us by God, without the Spirit continually ministering to us. So six things that illumination does not mean. But positively speaking, taking the flip side of some of those things, the illumination ministry of the Holy Spirit means that as we go to God's word, by our own diligent study, and with the help of God-sent teachers, God tells us we will come to know God and his wisdom more and more. 
That's a great promise. God, I want to know you more. How can I know you more? He says, I've given you my spirit. Go to my word. Listen to it being taught. Talk about it with one another. And you will know me. You will know my truth more. You will know my ways more. You will see the beauty of Christ more. Now, with that kind of promise, what should we do? We should do those things. We should cooperate, cooperate with the Spirit's intent. We should respond to God's ministry of illumination by his Spirit, by seeking the Lord diligently in his word. So in terms of ongoing ministry, we see that the Spirit indwells us, and as a consequence, the Spirit illumines us to understand and welcome the things of God. But there is another important ministry of the Spirit that flows out of indwelling, and we can call this ministry utilization. What is utilization? Before I answer that, let's look at a few more scriptures. Turn the page. Let's look at the, uh, the verses under question D. Question D asks us, what exhortations are given to all believers in regard to the Spirit from three passages? And we'll look at each of these. The first one is Ephesians 4.30. Ephesians 4.30. Actually, turn there. Take your Bibles and turn there. Because we're going to note some things about the context of each one of these verses. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What's the exhortation given to all believers in regard to the Spirit from this passage? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's pretty straightforward. Okay, we can move on. Wait, 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 wait. Look at the context. How does one grieve the Holy Spirit? Okay, so I think, Glenda, you've given a, an answer that's general but correct. When we go against what he says, and even specifically when we do what he tells us not to do, from the word, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And what are some things in the context that the Spirit specifically says we should not do? Danny. That's right. So when we don't put those things away from us, when we actually act in anger and malice and bitterness and outbursts of anger, we grieve the Spirit. What else? That's right. When we allow corrupting words to come out of our mouths, that which does not build up, that grieves the Spirit. When we will not forgive, that grieves the Spirit. Basically, when we sin, when we disobey the Lord, we grieve the Spirit. Thus, in verse 30, Paul reminds us about the Spirit's wonderful sealing ministry. He says, this Spirit was given to you as a guarantee and as a seal. So, by that, Paul exhorts us, do not grieve God's gracious Spirit by doing the evil that the Spirit forbids. Now, let's turn over to 1 Thessalonians 5.19. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Extremely short verse, but again, we'll look at the context. What does 1 Thessalonians 5.19 exhort believers to do when it comes to the Spirit and its ministry, his ministry? 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Okay, that's an obvious exhortation then. Believers are not to quench or extinguish the Spirit. 
What does that mean? Look at the context. Look at the kind of commands around this phrase. Notice believers are commanded to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks always, and do not despise prophetic utterances, but listen to God's true prophecy. What do you notice these commands have in common? Okay. Right. Right. So Mike's pointing out one quality. They're they're very inclusive. Always, all things. What else do these commands have in common? Okay. Yeah, we should not stop doing these things, and they are good things. Right? These are actually positive commands that we see in the context, right? It's not, oh, oh, avoid doing this, don't do that. It's actually pray, give thanks, rejoice. Though we do have the one that says, don't despise prophetic utterances. Most of the commands in the context are positive. And notice also, most of them, have to, uh, most of them involve speech, especially righteous speech, even speech that ministers to others or that brings praise to God. So based on these observations, can we get an idea of what Paul means when he says, do not quench the Spirit? A strong argument can be made that Paul is thinking about the positive actions in which the Spirit would have us engage, especially as part of ministry to others. Do not shut down the Spirit's ministry by failing to pray, failing to give thanks, failing to rejoice, or failing to allow the proclamation of God's supernatural revelation. This is how the Spirit is going to empower you, empower his people. Don't shut this down. Now compare these two exhortations from Ephesians 4.30 and 1 Thessalonians 5.19. How are they similar? And how are they different? Do not grieve the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Yeah, Steve. Okay, one, yeah, okay, so Steve's mentioning that one is more emphasis on our action and the other is more emphasis on the Spirit's reaction. Even in the second passage where it says, basically, allow the Spirit to do certain things, our action is involved, right? We can choose not to pray or we can choose not to give thanks or we can choose not to rejoice. But certainly there's going to be an effect of those actions on the Spirit's ministry to us. What else? Okay, yeah, that's, that's what Steve's comment was. Yeah, so I think that's a good way to describe it, Mark. Grieving the spirit is more active disobedience, whereas quenching the spirit is more neglect. Or we could frame it this way. I believe Pastor Bobby said something like this at the uh, men's conference. When we grieve, these are... When we grieve the Spirit, that's more like sins of commission. When we quench the Spirit, that is more like sins of omission. When you choose not to do what is good and helpful. The Spirit doesn't want you to sin, but the Spirit does want you to do these acts of righteousness and does want you to know the Lord more. 
When you refuse to do either one of those things, you are diminishing the Spirit's ministry. Both of these diminish the Spirit's ministry. And it's based on our own actions. Like I said, our will is involved in this, in, um, in ministries of the Holy Spirit, and this is one of them. You see, the Spirit in his ministry is uh, ministry to believers is not simply concerned with what we know, but with what we think and with what we say and with what we do, how we behave. In fact, part of the Spirit's work is taking what we know and translating it into the new Christian Christ-like life. Turn over to Ephesians 5.18 now. So going back to Ephesians. This is a very famous verse when it comes to the Holy Spirit's ministry and how we can respond to it, though this is an often misunderstood verse. Ephesians 5.18. This is in a context of a series of exhortations toward the worthy walk after receiving so great a salvation from the Lord. And Paul gives another exhortation that has to do directly with the Holy Spirit. Actually, let me read the verses around it so you get more of the idea. Verses 17 to 21, Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 17 to 21. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, some might try to use Ephesians 5.18 as a proof that believers should seek a second baptism or further indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But even today, but certainly previously, we've seen that the Bible doesn't allow for this interpretation. Spirit baptism and indwelling are realities that take place once. They are taking place once in full at conversion, though the effects are ongoing. So what exactly is this exhortation here to be filled with the Spirit? Well, certainly we can see the command is part of a contrast, a contrast that is first set up in verse 17. In verse 17, we're told not to be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord, that is the Lord Christ, is. Then in parallel, verse 18, we're told not to become drunk with wine, leading to shameful and uncontrolled behavior, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verses 19 to 21, we see the effects of a Spirit-filled life, speaking and singing to one another the truths of Christ, giving thanks in all things, in Christ's name to God the Father, and being subject to one another in God-ordained submission authority relationships out of reverence for Christ. And we should include that last one in verse 21 because it, that verb there, be subject, is actually a participle. It's another ing verb, just like the two that we see in the verses before, where it says, speaking, verse 19, giving thanks, verse 20, literally in verse 21, being subject to one another. These are all participles going back to that main verb, be filled with the Spirit. So engaging in proper authority submission relationships in a Christ-like way, that is an outcome of being filled with the Spirit. Though do notice that this is a command, and it is a command in the passive voice. We're, told, we're not told, rather, to fill yourselves with the Holy Spirit, but be filled with the Spirit. We are responsible to present ourselves to be filled up by someone else. And this command is in the present tense, meaning that it is to be an ongoing action. We're continually to allow ourselves to be filled 
with the Spirit. Okay, but maybe you're still asking, what does that mean? All right, I know I need to do it, but what does that mean? Well, many interpreters notice the contrast between wine and spirit and infer a meaning that has to do with influence over behavior. If being drunk with wine influences or leads you into act in a shameful and out-of-control way, then you are to act the opposite way as you let the spirit fill you, that is, lead and influence you. But how do you know the leading of the spirit? Is it something mystical like, let go, let God, uh, how do I feel, what does the spirit want me to do? Many good interpreters would answer, no, that is not the leading of the spirit. We know the leading of the spirit from Christ's word. After all, does not verse 17 say, understand what the will of the Lord is, the Lord Christ? Should we not, under, should we not look to understand his will from the word that he left us? With the, very, with the Spirit intent on helping us understand that very word. Also significant is the parallel passage in Colossians 3.16. Pastor Bobby went through this verse recently in his preaching. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If you're paying attention to that verse, you may notice that the structure and progression of that verse is very similar to Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. There's a command to be filled with something, followed by the implied effect of speaking and singing to one another Christ's truth and then giving thanks. Even more significant is that Colossians 3, 18, so just two verses after the one I read to you, talks about how believers should submit in God-ordained authority submission relationships, which is exactly what Ephesians 5, 21 says and goes on to describe. Thus, a paraphrase of Ephesians 5, 18 to 21 could function as follows. All believers have the Spirit of God, but not all believers are choosing continually to yield to the Spirit's desires and control as expressed in Christ's word. Believers, therefore, should become conscious of the Spirit's will for them through the word of Christ and then moment by moment yield themselves to the Spirit's will instead of the will of the flesh. You can say, oh, I know that's the good thing to do, but I don't really feel like doing it. Yield to the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, for doing so will result in a new life of bold truth proclamation, thanksgiving, and radical obedience. That's one way we could paraphrase this. And I would say essentially that such an interpretation of Ephesians 5, 17 to 21 is correct. However, there is a certain grammatical nuance in Ephesians 5, 18 that is worth noting. You see the prepositions in Ephesians 5, 18, with? Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, the Greek prepositions are better translated with the word by, or even with the phrase by means of. Do not get drunk by means of wine, but be filled by means of the Spirit. Actually, this is the way the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates the second phrase in Ephesians 5.18. Be filled by the Spirit. If you want to know the technical grammatical reason for that, you can ask me after class. Why does this matter? 
Well, the better preposition, translated, clarifies that rather than our being filled with the Holy Spirit, like we're a balloon and the Holy Spirit is the air, the Holy Spirit is the one filling us up with something else. He's the air dispenser. He's the means of our being filled. So then we ask, well, with what then does the Spirit fill us? And the answer is Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Being like the Lord in what we think, say, and do. Again, consider the context. Verse 17 tells us to know the Lord's will. Verse 19 to 20 tells us to speak the Lord's will to each other and give thanks through the Lord. Verse 21 tells us to put the Lord's will into practice into our specific relationships. And then, doesn't all this parallel Colossians 3.16 even more directly? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Spirit is intent of filling you with the word of Christ and then bringing it to its proper outcome. Furthermore, Ephesians 5.18 is not the only place in Ephesians that talks about Christ and filling. Just to briefly sample a few other verses from this book, Ephesians 1.23, Ephesians 1.23 says that Christ is the head of the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul prays in Ephesians 3.17 that Christ might dwell in believers' hearts through faith. And he prays in Ephesians 3.19, Ephesians 3.19, that believers would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Ephesians 4.10 mentions Christ's incarnation as ascension, and ascension as having the purpose that he, Christ, might fill all things, even by the teachers and gifts that Christ has given to his church. And then Ephesians 4.13 says that the equipping of the saints has in mind the goal in the church, the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And finally, Ephesians 4.15 says, Believers speaking to one another the truth and love, the intended result of such is growing up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So do you see? Paul is actually emphatic in the book of Ephesians that God is interested in filling us, so to speak, with Christ. With the knowledge of Christ, with his love, and those things resulting in Christ-like living. Is it any wonder then that the Spirit of Christ that is so intent on pointing us to Christ and glorifying Christ should also be about the work of filling us with Christ? To say it plainly, the Spirit is not only working to show us Christ's word, but to sanctify us to be more like Christ and to put Christ's word into practice. That's good news. Because are you, Christian, on your own, able to put Christ's word into practice? You are not. You need God to do this work for you. And guess what? God promises that he is doing that work for you. How? By his spirit. Listen again to the prayer from Paul in Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. This is for believers. Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. That he, God, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The Spirit empowers you so that you may know and be like Christ. So now we're ready for a definition of utilization. The Holy Spirit's work of utilization. In utilization, the Holy Spirit empowers believers for holy Christ-like living, energizing the volition or the will of believers to obey Scripture. The Holy Spirit empowers believers for holy Christ-like living, energizing the volition of believers to obey Scripture. You see, being filled by the Holy Spirit is not really about mystical, mysterious promptings. It's about cooperating with the Spirit's purpose of making you more like Christ. Being like Christ, acting like Christ, obeying Christ. We don't have too much time, but we could turn to other scriptures, like Galatians 5, that also speak about the ministry of the Spirit and are commonly misunderstood, misunderstood as referring to mystical guidance from the Holy Spirit. After all, we do see terms in that chapter about, being, about walking by the Spirit or being led by the Spirit or living by the Spirit. And those sound like pious goals, right? Oh, you're so stuck in the Bible. You need to be led by the Spirit. You need to walk by the Spirit. Well, what is the context of those phrases in Galatians 5? Galatians 5, 16 to 25. We don't have time to read it right now. But it's all about being Christ-like, not following the will of the flesh and its evil outcomes, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, etc., but instead manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in holiness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The passage concludes in verse 24. Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, means conforming yourself to the word of Christ. Walking in holiness. And consider how profound that is. Many people are looking for the Spirit's will. What does God's Spirit want me to do? How does he want me to act? Well, the Spirit has already told you. The Spirit has already told you what he wants, that you walk in holiness and wisdom like Christ. It's all over his word. So when you face a situation where you know what the right thing to do is, but you're not sure if you should do it or if you can do it, well, if you're going to obey Ephesians 5.18, what should you do? Yield to the Spirit's desire and will for you. Follow him. Be like Christ. This is how... He's intent on guiding you. This is how he's moving you. This is how he's empowering you. He wants you to think and act and speak like Christ, and he's strengthening you to do it. And you'll be amazed at what you can accomplish when you let yourself be filled by the Spirit like this. Say, I can never speak to this person. I know I should. I have the opportunity, but I can never do it. But when you go past that and you say, I'm going to rely on the Spirit, I'm going to trust the Spirit, I'm going to follow the Spirit's will for me, and you open your mouth, suddenly you're able to do what you thought you could never do. You say, I feel like I just have to turn this sealed, I have to yield, I, I just feel so depressed, I need this sin. But you say, but that's not the Spirit's will for me. The Spirit wants me to be like Christ. And he says he'll help me do that. All right, I'm not going to listen to the flesh. I'm going to get out of this situation. I'm going to go after Christ. All of a sudden, you find yourself doing it. You say, I didn't think I could do that before. 
That's utilization. That's spirit filling. That's the spirit empowering you to be more like Christ. This work may not be as mystical as we expect, but it is certainly supernatural. You cannot become Christ-like or obey Christ's word on your own. But it is a supernatural work which you can choose to cooperate with or resist. Perhaps you wonder, if the Spirit is empowering me for Christ-like living, why do I fall so much into sin? Well, it's not a failure of the Spirit. It's your failure to make use of the power that is ready at hand. You see, Spirit power is accessed by faith in Christ's word and by a commitment to do Christ's will. When you do not know Christ's word, when you do not believe it, or when you are not willing to follow it, well, you do not walk by the Spirit. You instead quench and grieve the Spirit. So that, is it any wonder that you do not see the Spirit's power on display in your life? The Spirit wants to fill you. But are you presenting yourself to be filled? You will not yield to his purpose, being too intent on following your own fleshly purpose. You won't see the Spirit's power. And if you persist in living this way, Galatians 5 says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who follow the desires of the flesh consistently, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you really belong to Christ, you will, by faith, align yourself with the Spirit's purpose, even when you don't feel like it, even when you feel like you don't have the power to do what's right. Galatians 5 says the flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh. But if you will more and more yield to the spirit's desire, as I said, you will find suddenly that you have the power to do or to endure what you could not do or endure before. You will become more like Christ. You will be used more by the spirit to minister for Christ. So how much more confident, how much holier, how much more joyful we would be if we would learn to utilize God's spirit by walking by faith according to God's word. This is what God meant for all of us in the Christian life. It's not like, okay, some people are going to be filled with the spirit to be Christ-like and others, no, they're just going to struggle and they'll never get there. No. This is for all of us. This is a gift. This is a ministry of the Holy Spirit to us. But are we taking advantage? Are we responding to it the way that we should? For both illumination and utilization, if you do respond, well, don't point, pat yourself on the back. That's really God doing that in you. And yet your will is involved. So don't say, oh, I'm struggling with sin. The Spirit's really failed me. No, it's you not taking advantage of the Spirit. He's there. He's ready. Yield to him. Yield to his desire to make you more like Christ. By the way, in all this, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be praying for the Lord to show you how to minister in certain ways, looking for what he providentially provides. I'm, I'm not discounting any of that. But I hope you see that being led by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, is not as mystical as some would like us to think that it is. And the Spirit makes actually clear his will for us through his word and wants us to obey it. 
As we come to the end of our chapter, you notice that the last Roman numeral is application. You're basically out of time. So I'm just going to give you these three questions to think about. Based on what we've talked about today, based on what we've learned about the Spirit, how should we respond? Well, we definitely should, right? The Holy Spirit, knowing the Holy Spirit, knowing his ministry, should change our lives. So here are three ways for you to consider. Number one, consider indwelling. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 says that our bodies are our temples of the Holy Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says that the church is the temple of God and the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So how should those truths, how should these truths move you to put off sin and glorify God in your body and in the church? Number two, consider illumination. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14 says that the Spirit has given you, the Spirit was given to you so that you would know the things of God, even the mind of Christ. So how are you cooperating with God's purpose and the Spirit's work? What needs to change so that you may align more with God's purpose and benefit thereby? Don't read the Bible? Don't study or listen to the Bible? How are you going to benefit from illumination? Certainly, if you struggle with it, get the help of your brethren. They'll help you understand, help you benefit more from that spirit ministry. And then number three, consider utilization or filling. Ephesians 5.18 says that you are commanded to present yourself continually to be filled up to the fullness of Christ by the Holy Spirit. How are you cooperating with this purpose of God? What needs to change so that you may align with God's purpose more and benefit thereby? The spirit-filled life, the spirit-led life, that's the blessed life. Not because everything is going well for you, but because you are beholding and imitating and pleasing Jesus Christ. Do you want that joy-filled life? Take advantage, submit to, benefit from the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. All right. If you have questions, I'm sorry I didn't leave any time for it. Come talk to me afterwards. That's it for this week. Next week, we have another kingdom worker coming during the Sunday school hour to give us a presentation, but that will not be streamed, so make sure that you're here in person. The following week, we will resume FOF, and we'll tackle the topic of prayer and the believer. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your spirit. But Lord, we ask your forgiveness for not utilizing the spirit not choosing the benefit from the Spirit as you would have us do. Lord, we do need you to open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. And we need your Spirit to put those things that we see in your word into practice. But you've promised that you will do those things for us. So Lord, help us by faith, therefore, to go to your word and to obey you. Lord, how much power we cut off that is available to us when we simply won't believe. Make us into a people of faith, Lord, so that we can be filled up to the fullness of Christ and show Christ to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, everyone.